But every now and then I hear a song come across the radio that catches my attention. But probably like you, it doesn't take long for me to grow tired of that song. Though I love it upon first hearing it and hearing it again and hearing it again and maybe hearing it again, I eventually, maybe rather quickly, grow tired of hearing it. Well, in fact, that is the nature of the music industry. Every single week, the Billboard Top 100 refreshes and is updated because what was relevant last week might not even make the charts this week. So what makes a song relevant through the ages? Well, there have been a few artists like Frank Sinatra and Elvis and even in our own day, Taylor Swift, who have written songs that feel timeless. But give it another 50 years or maybe 100 years tops, most of these songs and even these artists will likely be forgotten. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a song that is slightly older than that. Slightly older than 50 to 100 years. In fact, 2,000 years have gone by since this teenage artist dropped her living room classic, The Magnificat. And here we are in Arkansas, 6,000 miles away, 2,000 years removed. And here we are turning the volume up on her song as we get caught up in the lyrics. Well, friend, isn't that the point of the Christmas season? Isn't the point of the Christmas season to turn the volume of God's word up in our lives while doing the best that we can to turn the volume of the world down, to turn the volume of distraction down, to turn the volume up on God's word and his grace in our lives and turn the volume of everything else down? Isn't the point of the Christmas season to hone in our attention to that which is most important. How God, who had purposed before the foundations of the world were laid, before time even began, how God sent his own son, a babe, a child, born in Bethlehem, who's going to live the life that I could not live and die the death that I deserve to die. That's the point of the Christmas season. Well, like any, any good story or any good song, there is a backstory which inspires the lyrics, and Mary's song is no different. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, Luke tells us the breathtaking backstory of how the, the angel Gabriel visits Mary in Nazareth and informs her that she is going to give birth to Jesus, the Son of God. She's going to be giving birth to the Messiah, the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. And the content of Mary's songs, the song that we're studying this morning, just a few verses later from Gabriel's visit to her in Nazareth, is likely derived content of her song is likely derived from the interaction that she has with Gabriel. 
One might say that she has a heavenly tune that was given to her. And then in verses 39 to 45, Luke tells us a story which initiated Mary's spontaneous living room worship song. As soon as she receives this news from the angel Gabriel, she makes a 50-mile journey to the region of Judea and enters her relative's house, Elizabeth's house. And as she enters Elizabeth's house, Luke records a first-century pregnancy announcement. You know both of these ladies are pregnant. Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist, the one who we've been studying in Mark, the, the man who is the forerunner to Christ. And Mary is carrying the Son of God in her womb. And Luke tells us that as Mary walks into the living room, as Mary walks into Elizabeth's house, the unborn John the Baptist leaps in her womb, and simultaneously she is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she begins to bless Mary. And all of this, this all of these exciting situations and scenarios, all of these things are setting the stage for Mary's magnificent song song that we're studying this morning. And while her song doesn't appear to have a chorus, when I look at it, I see a refrain. God's mightiest mercy has been manifested for me in Jesus the Magnificent. God's mightiest mercy has been manifested to me, for me. In Jesus the Magnificent. And this refrain is surrounded by two sections which will serve as our two points this morning. God's mercy to Mary, verses 46 to 49, and God's mercy to many, verses 50 to 55. Now if you would please join me by turning your attention to what will be the best part of this morning's message. The reading of God's holy, infallible, authoritative, inerrant word. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's take a second and go to the Lord in prayer asking for his help as we set our hearts and minds to study his word today. Father, we 
are so thankful for your word. Father, if you had not, if you had not revealed yourself to us, if you had not told us this Christmas story, we would have never known. We would have have never known who you are. We would have never known your grace, your kindness, your endless capacity to love us. Father, thank you. I ask that you please give us the grace. Please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first point this morning is God's mercy to Mary. Verses 46 to 49. Well, the entire setting of this living room worship set is amazing to me. Consider this for a moment. These words that we are reading and studying this morning, these are the first recorded words from Mary since she was informed of her unique role to give birth to the Son of God. And listen, it was in the living room with her relative Elizabeth. Take that in for a moment. She has just received this revelation from an angel, Gabriel. I haven't seen the angel, Gabriel. You haven't seen the angel, Gabriel. She has just seen the angel, Gabriel, the one who is in the presence of the Lord. And the first announcement of her encounter with the angel, Gabriel, is in the living room with her relative, Elizabeth. I think it's amazing to think about that. Redemptive history is being disclosed, not to the high courts of the day, not to the leading scholars or the scientists of the day, but to two ordinary women in the hill country of Judea. The hinge of history was revealed to a first century teenage girl and a barren woman. But isn't this how the Lord works, friend? He, doesn't he choose the weak to shame the strong? According to our logic, we would have expected him, and if he would have asked our opinion, we would have given it. We would have said, if you're going to make this announcement, Lord, you should think about going to the leading publication of the, of the day. Go to Jerusalem Times. Let your recording be known there. Or maybe you should go and, and hire out a cameo of the, of the leading personality of the day. Why don't you go talk to the leading personality of the day and inform them so they can have the largest platform to make this announcement. We would have thought that this kind of announcement would have come into the microphone <laughs> The most influential microphone of the day. But God does not do things the way that we do things, does he? (laughs) What a relief. He is not driven by arrogance or by pride. He doesn't do things the way we do things. Listen to this. God was most glorified by a pregnancy announcement in a living room which broke forth into a worship set in the remote hill country of Judea. (laughs) That is so cool. Man, that is so cool. 
And what, what a breath of fresh air in our day and our culture. It is just all about big, glamorous, empty sort of announcements. You know what, friends? Such is the way of the Lord even now in our day. If you're like me, ordinary in every way, take heart. For it is the ordinary person that the Lord delights in using in some of the most extraordinary ways. And what brings him the greatest glory is not always the largest crowds, but the most sincere hearts. In verse 46, when Mary takes the stage, stands in the middle of the rug and in the living room, and begins to sing her song, we find her avoiding the spotlight. But instead she lifts her hands and lifts her voice into the heavens and says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's response to the revelation of God choosing her as the unique person in history to carry the Messiah and raise him in her home does not cause her to take a microscope and begin to, begin to inspect her admirable characteristics which qualified her for the task. But instead... She instinctively turns the telescope away from herself and onto, the, and onto the Lord and says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary sets her soul's eye on the end of the telescope, taking in the wonder of her gracious God and what her soul sees, her soul sings. Friends, this is another great reminder for your Christmas Eve, for my Christmas Eve. Though I love everything about the Christmas season, I love the warm house, I love how well Sarah does and getting our house to be so warm and, and so Christmassy and so, so, so homey. Though I love the warm house, I, I love the cheesy movies. I don't like The Grinch, but I love other Christmas movies. I love the cheesy movies. I love the quality family time that Christmas seems to hold. But the most important thing for us to immerse ourselves in is the wonder of the incarnation. The wonder of how the eternal Son of God, the one who had no beginning. The eternal Son of God took on the humility of human flesh so that he might live and die for me on the cross. So friend, let me ask you something. What direction is your magnifying glass facing this morning? Is it faced like a microscope, introspective, of yourself, introspective of your scenarios, introspective of your situation, or is it like Mary's? Have you flipped it around? Is it like a telescope where you're taking in to the best of your ability the greatness of God and His grace 
in this season. The greatness of God supremely seen in the incarnation. Friends, what our soul sees in this Christmas season, our soul will sing. So, friend, do you need to turn the magnifying glass away from yourself this morning? Do you need to turn it away from whatever it is setting on in yourself, in your context, and in your situation? Do you need to turn it so that it might set on the incarnation, so that it might set on God, so that it might set on the point of this season? The point of this season is not busyness or not having not having the best home or the most hospitable home or having the best presence or having the, the account to afford the best presence or having the greatest experience for your children. Or, that's not the point of this season. The point of this season is to immerse ourselves, to set ourselves deep, deeper than ankle deep, to set ourselves up above our heads deep into the wonder of God's great grace in the incarnation, that what he has done for us in sending his son in the likeness of human flesh. Matt Smethurst says something really timely. He says the greatest threat to Christmas is not secularism or consumerism, but our own boredom with the most thrilling story ever told. Yeah, that is a great threat. It's a great threat because our culture and our world is pressing in for it to be a great threat. So friend, are you bored with the Christmas story? On December the 24th, 2023, are you bored? With the Christmas story. On this Christmas Eve, are you thinking, man, I wish it were December 26th. Just to get past all this stuff. To get past all the fluff. Friend, if that's you, the problem might not be the fluff. It might be your heart. Remove those things. Destroy those things and set your heart on Christ. Set your heart on Him. Don't let all these distractions creep in and choke you out. Choke out the joy that's reserved for this day, for this season. Immerse yourself in the incarnation. My prayer is that God would enable our souls this morning to see with fresh vision the greatness of His grace in sending Christ in the incarnation. In verse 48, Mary says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. John Calvin says, The sense of this verse is, I was insignificant and despised, but that did not prevent God from turning his eyes toward me. Yes. Amen. Friend, do you see what's happening in this song? <laughs> Mary's soul sings, not because she finds herself worthy to be a part of this glorious wonder, but because she knows herself to be 
totally and completely unworthy to play a part in this wonder. The Lord did not pick her to sing this song because she was Nashville bound. No, she was Nazareth bound. Mary was a backwoods teenager from Nazareth. And I love Nazareth because it reminds me of Arkansas. It makes, if there's 50 places in the region of Judea, it's number 50, like Arkansas on all the lists, the socioeconomic, the education level, all the lists is number 50. And that's where God was pleased to come and reveal this great news. Friend, again we are reminded in God's economy that the most unexpected people <laughs> no one would pick me to have been a preacher, to, been a, to have been a pastor growing up. No one would have thought that. But God uses the, unex, the most unexpected people, like me, like you. He chooses us to receive the attention the God of the universe, who among us is noble, who among us is from royalty or fame, <laughs> who among us went to an Ivy League school. <laughs> Let's even go that close to home. None of us. Yet we know God because he has been pleased to make himself known to us. We know God because he has been pleased to make himself known to us. So let me ask you a pressing question. I hope you feel it. Does that reality still produce wonder in your heart? Are you still in awe that you know him? And the only reason you know him is because he made himself known to you. <laughs> Does that still produce wonder? In your heart. Well, as the beat to Mary's song hits harder, she drops this unforgettable line in verse 49. She says, For he who is mighty has done a great thing for me, and holy is his name. Now, there is no doubt that this, long, this line to this song was inspired by the words of the angel back in verse 35. This is, what, this is what Luke records for us. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So what the angel had recently made known to her in Revelation... She now sings forth in exaltation. The child that is to be born to her is none other than the serpent-crushing promised one from Genesis chapter 3. She finds herself swept up in God's story from the very beginning of the creation of humanity. This child is the chosen one who will redeem all of God's people, including her, 
from the punishment and the penalty of our sins. Knowing who this child is and what he will do for her, what he will do for all of God's people, causes her to burst forth with that unforgettable line. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Friends, he certainly has done great things for Mary. He's certainly done great things for Mary, but you know what? He certainly has done great things for me and great things for you as well, which leads to our second point, God's mercy to many, verses 50 to 55. The sweetness of the Savior that she's carrying in her womb will not be reserved for her only. She says in verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I love that Mary pivots at this point in the song. This isn't just a song where she's explaining how she's going to benefit from this child, but she's also describing and detailing for us, here's how we're all going to benefit from this child. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. But how does Mary's song bear relevance to us 2,000 years later? By pointing us to the promise of this child who is to be born. But who is this child born for? Mary says his mercy is for those who fear him. What a relief this morning to know that the promise of God's mercy is not contingent on our performance. It's not contingent on our social status, on our IQ level. It's not contingent on our family lineage. It's not contingent on what we've experienced in the past what home we were raised in, whether good or bad. None of his mercy is contingent on these human realities. The promise of his mercy is available to all who fear him. Now, what does it mean to fear God? Ed Ed Welch says this. He says, the fear of the Lord means reverent submission that leads to obedience. Reverent submission. This means living our lives in light of God's glorious grace in the gospel. And it means living our lives in light of the reality that he is also our judge. He is the God of the universe. (laughs) So we approach him with confidence and we live before him with reverence. Then in verse 51, Mary says this, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now what is Mary saying here? 
Well, Mary knows her Bible. She knows God's word. Her mind is filled with God's word. She knows that throughout redemptive history, she knows her Old Testament. Throughout redemptive history, it has been God's pattern to choose the weak in the world to shame the strong. He's always chosen those who were considered least in the world to humble the proud. She knows the story of the Exodus. Moses was not a great man. Moses was a man guilty of murder. Moses was a man who was weak because he knew his own stuttering frequencies with his mouth. But God uses this man to humble the mightiest man in the world at that time, Pharaoh. Mary knows her Old Testament. She knows that time and time again, God chooses the weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses the last one who's picked on the kickball team out on the playground and recess. That's the one he's choosing to make a great impact in the world. He's always chosen the least in the world to humble the proud. Mary is acknowledging that once again, at the pinnacle of redemptive history, he has done it again. Therefore, God's people, despite our position in life, should take heart. It's not the criteria of this world which positions us to be used by him. Yes, We should, if called for higher education, to pursue higher education. Yes, we should take measures to craft our trades and our skills. Yes, we should do those things. Yes, we should receive gifts from the Lord and do our best to hone those gifts to be sharp so they might be great. We might be great vessels in the hands of the Lord. But at the bottom, at the foundation level of all of this, it is not our resumes and our qualifications that get us anywhere with the Lord. It's not all the things that we point to, Lord, I've done this and I have this natural ability and I have these capacities and I have these capabilities. None of those things get us anywhere with the Lord. Lord, look at my resume. Look at my resume. Use me. I'm the most usable person in the world. Use this. Look at this list of things that I've done, these list of talents and qualifications that I have. They get you nowhere with him. He says, read your Bible. Who have I always chosen? Look at Moses' resume. He murdered a guy, and I'm going to use him to give the law that says do not murder. Fascinating. He was sent into the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, you talk about a sabbatical. What's he doing out there for 40 years? Well, he's not going to the Ivies. He's in the wilderness, and God goes to him and pulls him. Friends, verse 53, Mary tells us that he filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. My Christian friend, this Christmas Eve should remind us again that we come to the Son of God with empty hands. 
We did when we first met him and we do now. We did then and we do now and we will forever. We come to him with empty hands. We kneel at the cross with nothing to give him of worth. Nothing that makes him think of all the multitude of peoples. I'm looking for one little present. That's the best resume. That one right there. That guy right there. That's the one I'm going to use. Or that's the one I'm going to reveal myself to. No, those things just don't get us anywhere. What's he looking for? A broken and a contrite heart. That's what he's looking for. He's looking at our hearts. He's looking at our hearts. We come to the Son of God with empty hands. Christmas is glorious. I love presents. I love getting presents, of course. But I also love getting presents. But man, make don't make this mistake. Christmas is not a reminder of, of all the presents that we bring to him. Look at all my nice, neatly wrapped life, Lord, that I'm bringing to you. Look at how I've got it all together. Look at my wrapping. I've done such a good job. This not about the Christmas season. We don't have presents worthy to give to him. But the good news is that he's not after anything that we can give to him. Mary tells us that he has come to fill the hungry with good things. But the rich he has sent away empty. Now what does it mean that he has come for the hungry? Well, Jesus himself defines this for us in the Sermon on the Mount when he says this, Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger is a way that your body reminds you that you are missing something essential for life. Well, likewise, Jesus has come for those whose souls say, I am missing something essential for life. For the souls that recognize their great need for a Savior, Jesus has come. For the soul that recognizes that they are bankrupt without his righteousness, that they are totally and incompletely unable to be right with him, those are the ones for whom a Savior has come. For the self-sufficient soul, the one who has no need, the one whose soul sees no need for God's salvation, for that soul, Mary says, the rich, he has sent away empty. This has nothing to do with finances and everything to do with the poverty of our soul. So friend... If your soul sees its great need for a Savior, it will sing of God's glorious salvation provided for you in Christ. If your soul sees its great need for a Savior, your soul will sing of God's glorious salvation in Christ. 
Then Mary sings this in verses 54 to 55. She says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. She's saying that he sends the hungry away with the promise of being the children of the covenant. He sends the hungry away with the promise of being the children of God. Of being the sons and daughters of God in Christ. And all of this is because he who is mighty has done a great thing. By remembering his promise to his people. And sending his son to live and die for us. In our place on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. So friends, as we prepare to close this message, let me ask you, what Christmas tune is stuck in your head? What Christmas tune has been lodged in your mind for the last few days or weeks? Well, here's my hope for me, and I hope it becomes a hope for you. My hope is that I, as I wake up tomorrow morning, that my soul would sing this song to the Savior with fresh vision and with fresh vigor. He who is mighty has done a great thing for me. He who is mighty has done a great thing for me, and holy is his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there are, <laughs> every Sunday I just feel like it, I wish it did not end. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you that we get together and hear of what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you that we have these moments in our life like Christmas that are meant to remind us of eternal truths far surpassing the vanity of this world, the reality of what you've done for us and your love. Lord, we need your help to not be people who are caught up and distracted by all the distractions that come at us right now in this moment. We need, to be, we, need to, we need your help to be a people whose souls see and sing of what you've done for us in Christ. For that we ask you, in Christ's name, amen.